Welcome to the Corporate Legal Ops Consortium podcast, where we dive deep into conversations with technology and operations thought leaders from across the legal ecosystem. This is Clock Talk. I'm your host, Jen McCarran. I'm on the board of directors at Clock, and I lead the Netflix legal operations and technology team. Today's episode is the second in a series of three episodes we're releasing in collaboration with EY Law titled The Art of the Possible. In this conversation, I'm joined by Barb Rogers, Vice President Global Contracts at Honeywell, and Kyle McNeil, EY America's Contract Lifecycle Management Leader. We discuss strategies for implementing an enterprise contract lifecycle management system, including how to have impact, where to start, and common roadblocks. I hope you'll be as surprised as I was to learn while tech is an important enabler, successful CLM really isn't about the technology at all. And now, episode two in the EY Law sponsored series, Art of the Possible. So Barb, Kyle, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you for joining today. Thank you so much for having us. Great to be here with you. So today we're diving into every legal operations or technology person's favorite topic, enterprise contract lifecycle management. We're diving into practical strategies for improving business performance with contract lifecycle management. Yes, but I have a feeling we're going to get into a lot of the how we get there. How do we get to increase speed, more revenue for the company, faster cycle times on contracts? The secret is in the how. So I'm excited to get into this. So we had a pre-chat around some of these. And I think one area we were all starting to rally behind is, okay, there's all this wonderful technology on the market today, third-party technology in this contract lifecycle space. But the three of us talked more about two things, competency around implementing and managing the right people and processes around this kind of technology, and then the capability within the organization. Did we even talk about technology? You know, that's interesting because I don't think we really touched so much on the technology. It was more about the how you bring people's hearts and minds to this new way of doing business and what the output is going to be from that versus what the technology platform really is. And why certainly technology is a enabler of new service models in the enterprise around contracting. Technology alone cannot perform contracting. You can't automate contracting and process people, legal content or other areas where you have to focus in order to prepare yourself to adopt these models and deliver better business results. Really well said. So in this episode, we're not getting into who's the best CLM on the market and go get them and our opinions on ironclad or isertus no which i love because we get at the deeper stuff and my hypothesis here is you can pick any one of them and it's a function of your competency and capability development around clm that is going to have a direct impact on the success of this it could be arguably the worst tech i'm air quoting or the best one on the market but it's these two things that are part of the formula Barb, let's go back to you. I love when you say around competency, it's about getting in the hearts and minds of the people in legal and and in your operations function. Tell me more about that. How do you get into the hearts and minds? It's really about 
explaining the art of possible. Where are you going to be able to go with this technology, starting with where you are today with really probably contracts and desk drawers and tacked on people's walls and probably on people's desktops and hard drives? What is the shift going to get you? Because everybody is adverse to change. No matter, someone tells you they're a change agent, they use all the great words, they're going to lean in, they're going to change. Nobody likes change in general. And so how do you paint that picture of what you're going to get on the other side and how that's going to enable better business outcomes, better business processes, less risk in your contracts through enabling a CLM tool? How long does that take? How long does Barb take? And a lot for that period in change management and conversation and presentations. That's a great question because we really thought that it wasn't going to take very long. But when I got into it and started to do what I would call a roadshow about how we're going to do this, we felt a lot of anxiety in the organization. And so we took a step back and said, okay, we don't need to move as quickly as you're not comfortable with. And so what we did is we peeled out the pieces of the organization or the pieces of the processes that everybody felt really good comfort level, like NDAs. Okay. We feel like we can take, yes, very easy. Right. And we're okay. That can go into a COE model and we'll do that first when we deploy our CLM and see how it goes. And so rather than pushing really hard on the organization to take everything. It was a a slower uptick. And we went contract type by contract type. We went NDAs and then sales and then procurement. But we also did it differently with the businesses. And I also had, when I say the businesses, I mean each one of our individual business units. And I also had a COE that was doing a lot of the contracting excellence work around that lift of the work into the CLM. I love this. We are going to get into this concept of a center of excellence because it might be essential in this competency and capability discussion. But before we dive into that deeply, Kyle, your thoughts on competency and that initial period of getting people ready, how long does it take? What does it look like in your corner of the world? When you are looking to drive measurable bottom line impacts to an enterprise through a contracting change initiative, It takes months to frame and charter that initiative. There's business cases that need to be prepared. There are people's jobs have to change. You have to be very intentional in framing what it is you're going to achieve and framing how that's going to impact the organization and get all the stakeholders aligned and on the same page for that. And then the implementation side, and this is more of a transformational type of implementation. It can take years. It can. It certainly should be phased. It certainly should be set up to have quick wins to build momentum along the way, because these implementations, these change initiatives, and I don't mean just technology change, right? these change initiatives, they're full of risk. And we have to identify those risks because we have to manage those risks and we have to remove those issues and build momentum over time. So Kyle, I just want to say to that point, a couple of things to add. So creating that business case was paramount to the success and that did take months. And then when we decided we wanted to put a COE in place along with the technology, We did a whole start, stop, continue exercise down to the task level of everybody involved in the organization doing contracts so that we really had good swim lanes around where the work was going to go. And we did all of that before we did any lifting or changing of work. So to your point, it does take years, not just to implement the technology, but to really do that foundational groundwork up front. 
just add one final thing on this topic, and it's you should think of this as a continual capability in your organization and one that will require attention past the initial implementation. Technology is disruptive in this space. Every week, every month, we're seeing new capabilities come to the table. And so you have to set yourself up to be doing this more continually than thinking of it as a one-time initiative. That is such a good point. And you said something earlier, Kyle, I want to key in on. People's jobs will be changing with respect to a new contract lifecycle solution, new centers of excellence, people, best practices, processes put into centralized teams. It's transformational work. And that takes time to show people, to sell to people, to invite them in to be transformational or be a part of that change. What are some of your tips and tricks in there? And then we'll go to Barb. How do you position that to people? Because I've certainly been the one who's come in and said, we're doing ABC and contract lifecycle. And I lose half of the contract administration audience. They're like, oh my God, she's coming for us. And, And it's not the case. I'm coming to help lift you up. Thoughts on that? So in chartering the program that Barb spoke about and I mentioned a moment ago, one of the real key items that you have to do up front is stakeholder analysis. So we have to understand who our stakeholders are. We're not just talking about the act that draft contracts or negotiate contracts or approve contracts. We're talking about changing the business process of quote to cash or procure to pay. And we are talking about all the stakeholders that benefit from that. And we have to identify who those stakeholders are. And we have to understand what it is from their perspective. Is their disposition towards the change initiative? What it is they're looking to get out of it? what issues they might see or what detractions they may have to it. And all of those things have to be managed, including the people that are going to change how they negotiate the contract or draft the contract using a technology, but more broadly across the business landscape. I found that doing an exercise I would call roll the marble, which is really from cradle to grave on a contract, every single function and person that touches it and understand what that interaction is with the contract, not just maybe from a a work perspective, but also a system perspective. Where are the ins and outs of all of those pieces of the contract? And then in addition to that, it still isn't one size fits all. When you say, okay, the finance function meets these things, it might be different for different parts of the finance function. You So you have to get extremely granular. And while you might not be able to fix everything for everybody, acknowledging that there's differences and that we're going to come back and try and adapt across the different business functions that are touching contracts was very important. And Kyle, you said it before, this is an ongoing phased new program within the team, the legal ops and tech function, the legal department. This is not a slam a tech into place, check the box and move on to another big technology. And then Barb, you said it's about the contract type, which couldn't be more true. And that is, I believe, one way to phase all of this. There are potentially hundreds or thousands of contract types in some of our organizations. I know when I was at Spotify, that is how we tranched and approached this work was by types. And I think by the time I left, there were, I think we brought through less than 200 types through the contract lifecycle solution, through the deals desk, through the center of excellence that was being built and established around that. But then the others that we couldn't, we just said, do them offline and file them. File them at that last upload point into that system 
and then we'll work down that list over time. Does that resonate with you, Barb, and how things go? A hundred percent. And I think that took a lot of the anxiety out of the organization, right? You look for opportunities and ways by contract type to say, this is the process it's going to follow. But naturally there's going to be fallout because either the tool isn't sophisticated, you haven't deployed the technology that you need for all of that sophistication. I've heard a lot about language. In a lot of countries, you have to contract outside of English and the tools might not be ready to handle that. So creating that sense of awareness of what goes outside, I think really helped the organization be less anxious about everything was changing. Yeah. The system's not always being able to manage, especially American and England or Western Europe centric solutions that index on English. They don't do as well with picture language or multi-character language. And then if you hear us out there, contract vendors, maybe it's something to add your roadmaps because it's hard for us to go back to our teams and cultures who have these languages as their base business language and go, sorry, the system's just not there. So keep doing manual. But what if that culture is the number one on your company's strategy for growing the business in? It's a really good point too, because for global companies, it's extremely hard to attract talent outside of the home country, let's call it the U.S., when you're constantly carving out processes and tools that don't work in their region, in their language for a variety of reasons. So it absolutely is, I think, a concern for CLMs going forward. Go ahead, Kyle. So I want to take you back for a moment to what you were discussing earlier around phasing and just say that the legal content, again, is a big part of the change initiative. It's very common for companies to have variation in their even within a type of contract from template to template or business unit to unit or division to division or geo to geo. And so absolutely legal content and contract-based implementations make a lot of sense because you have to transform that legal content and you have to do it up front really to drive downstream optimization because we're talking about negotiating those documents downstream. And so the procedures for negotiation matter that they're aligned and standard. You're also bringing up a point around jurisdiction or language which is another consideration for phasing and also a consideration as it relates to maybe even what technologies you select. It's certainly English versus, you know, or Latin language versus character driven language, but even in the Latin American languages and the technologies around them, Spanish and Portuguese, if you observe this and when you look at the landscape, there are regional CLMs that are popping up to serve these language markets. And so if that's your preference, if you're really focused on global contracting, and you want to phase it, you may be looking at even different applications that need to be knitted together to drive what you need practically for your business. Ooh, that's a point I'd love to come back to in a bit because I believe contract lifecycle management is not all solved by one solution. And sorry to those solutions out there who are listening, who I'm friends with some of you saying, you're wrong, Jen. We should debate this on another podcast episode. I believe that business is complex. It cannot all be canned and crammed into one way in one technology. And I don't see technologies doing a ton around the clause level management involved in all of this and harmonizing clauses and coming up with really good clause management area functionality so that teams, drafters particularly, can know all of essentially what's in a playbook, what's in the playbook for the company on that contract type. Barb, thoughts on that? You perked up around the class. Yeah, because that's just near and dear to my heart is that 
The tool does not do that. That is really about the people who are in it every day and managing down to that clause level. And we talked earlier about contract types. You can start with a huge disparity of contract types and through that clause level management, you can distill that down to a more manageable level or a more manageable number of contract types because you start to see the similarities. And that's where you start to drive some efficiencies in the actual contracting process where you have this standard language that is applicable across a variety of different contract types. And it's a plug and play in terms of how you build those contracts. Plug and play modular. If you go to put a certain contract type in the solution and you look on the templates and there's 89 indemnity clauses, you don't want to code that in to the menus. That's a lot for a tech team to manage, maintain. That's a lot of variability. And you have to ask yourself and your business, the bigger question, why do we need 89 ways to indemnify someone? Maybe three, maybe five or three in different region per region. That's exactly the approach that we took to is looking at those number of repetitive clauses that are core to every single contract. But gosh, how do you manage 89 clauses when you need to make a word change to them? It's just an enormous amount of work. And so that's absolutely the approach that you have to take is that standardization, that rationalization of the language. The nice part too about CLM, once you get into it, is then you can actually start to track and look at what clauses are you actually using? People die on their sword over, I have to have this clause. But when you go and look at the contracts that are being built, that clause is only in the contract 5% of the time. And so you start to be able to talk with data around how to continue to improve the contracting process using a clause library, a template library, and the data that you're actually seeing coming out of the tool. You're going to need another tool to do what you just said, because I think kind of what I see in standard CLM solutions of the last five years is they're not always able to give you that count, like how many times this was used because your inputs would have had to been codified so well. Are your ears ringing, Kyle, that we need another solution there? This is an area where technology will always play a role, but ultimately what we're talking about is we're talking about applying concepts such as lean and statistical analysis, the act of negotiation down to the level of the contracted content. And what we're looking for is where there are high degrees of negotiation at a concept or a clause level, if you can do that, which you can, I've seen it done, you can do it, but you can't do it neatly with, you know, press a button on an application. If you can do that, then you start to identify the bottlenecks in your contracting process. And you start to identify ways to make policy updates or playbook updates or template updates that better align with the realities you're achieving in your negotiated outcomes, which is going to drive your effort in contracting now. It's going to make your customer experience better, your supplier experience better, the experience better of the professional that's negotiating, all these things will happen. You know, I think that's an area of innovation that we need to see really come to light in contracting in the coming years. So your point is technology is not doing that easily at the click of a button, but using frameworks and concepts and lean and statistical analysis and people doing that work today in these first phases you can start to get that. And I think all roads here lead to Rome. And Rome is the center of excellence that every legal ops or tech or transformation professional needs to be putting in place. 
first and alongside these contract systems so that you can have a flexible model of people, best practices, approaches. There's lean in there. Someone's able to do that statistical analysis and project form. And you have that ability to bend over what the tech can't cover. So let's go to Rome, the center of excellence. Barb, I think of it as a team. It's a shared facility or it's an entity that has leadership, best practices, maybe research, maybe support training all encompass into one over any given capability or process or anything. Define what center of excellence means for you. You build these things. For me, the center of excellence is all about those core competencies around what belongs in a contract, how to manage the clauses, the clause library, the contract process, the connection points into the different tools. So you need a team who's actually doing the contracts and they need to go off and do contracts. And then you need a group that's going to help support that by providing the tools and best practices and playbooks in how to do that. When you mix those roles, you're really kind of blurring the lines between what those role competencies look like. And so I have been building a center of excellence alongside our CLM, and that has really been the secret sauce around deploying the CLM in a very meaningful way that is impactful to the organization is by having that contracting excellent support structure around it. Does the center of excellence have to include people with a JD or a law degree? Do they have to understand the inside four walls of a contract with that training? What do you both think? I don't think necessarily. I think you need a good mix. I think having a JD is a very necessary part of some of it, but not necessarily all of it. There's truly contract professionals without a JD that are excellent at understanding contracting. Through training. Kyle, what are your thoughts on JD or not in centers of excellence? Yes, there's certainly a role for JDs and a center of excellence and experienced negotiators as well. And so what you're trying to do with the center of excellence is you're trying to industrialize and digitize contracting. It's contracting though, it's legal content. And ultimately our lawyers that are very experienced in artisanal approaches to contracting play a huge role here, specifically as it relates to legal content in the management of that content. It's not just statisticians that are saying, oh, okay, well, you got 89 indemnification clauses and 80% of the time you're negotiating them. You need to take that and translate it into new legal content. So that's certainly the role of policy change and and practice of law, really, when we're talking about changing our policies and our contract and negotiation procedures. As we move from there, I love the term T-shaped lawyers. I'm sure we've all heard it many times now. Technologists are a really important part of the COE, statisticians, data people, at least bits and pieces of their time. And lawyers that think that way, that have negotiated, that know how to configure technology, that can speak technology and speak contracting are a very important part of implementation and maintenance of these COEs. Yeah. So the answer is we need it all. We need a mix of it all. The JD, and I ask this because I don't have a JD and I'm building centers of excellence and Sometimes I wish I had one so I could just go in and rationalize 89 indemnity clauses. And then I'm like, oh my God, I'd be very sad in my work every day. That is not my purpose in life. I was not put on the planet to do that, but to wrap the tech around the process, train and transform the paralegal roles into superpower paralegals equipped with tech and data. I love that. 
I didn't look at your LinkedIn. So do you both have JDs? You do, Kyle? No. Okay. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a technologist and a business process transformation person. This is a great kind of spread here. And no one's acting on the bias of you need a JD for everything, which, you know, as a person without one in a legal environment, I'm always challenging just to be true to my contrarian self. So the center of excellence really is something, and I've seen them built by various people, some with JDs, some without. It's really about being willing to get into those clauses to harmonize things and have best practices around the contracting process so that the technology and COE combined can set legal's business partners free from manual. The technology has to be an enabler of the function. It doesn't own the function. It has to enable the function to do better contracting. And you can only do better contracting when you become more efficient, more effective, more standard, and world-class in terms of how you are doing those processes. Yeah, there's something in there too. There's so much approval staging in contracting at companies. And what you just said is really true when it comes to those various levels of approvals we need. The tech has to enable that and make it move swimmingly, not some email beehive cluster of manual stuff that you have negotiators or senior attorneys in there chasing for approvals. Something tech backed by a center of excellence, Barb, you're saying can really enable this. Exactly. Okay. Well, switching gears here in implementing CLM for the enterprise, let's think about things to watch out for or maybe mistakes or traps you've fallen into and things like bottlenecks. Let's talk about some more of the hard stuff. Kyle, I'll start with you because you've done a lot of these things and the watchouts when designing a center of excellence, the capability and competency and the solution of technology to work around that. Have any watchouts that you want to tell the audience or great stories? I've had a couple on legal content. Again, I'm going to emphasize that when you're setting these things up, that you have to focus on legal content. You need to focus on it up front. And if you don't, the consequence can be that even if you implement, let's take auto drafting and technology as an example, even if you generate a capability for low complexity agreements to be created in self-service, the moment that making changes to your contracting content and your tech team becomes a bottleneck in making those changes, or you experience quality issues between the evolution of your policies and the updates of your content, this drives adoption pressure further out. You may have a great start and you may think things are going well. You may lose that. I've seen it happen. I've seen companies implement these technologies and they atrophy. They don't get care and feeding. So you got to focus on that legal content. You have to ensure that it's done up front and accordingly. And you have to have an eye towards how you're going to operate this on a moving forward basis, not just how you're implementing it. That's one that I think is a very common thing that I see. It's really on theme with what we're talking about here. It's if you don't focus on the inputs into this, the technology is going to be limited or even difficult to maintain. I've certainly experienced this. Maybe the clauses are changing so much and too much variation is built into the tech that it could bottleneck at the tech team is what you're saying. I'll say that. And you have to establish governance around the evolution of this content. You're not now just maintaining technology, but you're also governing what's in your contracts. Right. And you have to get into really a publication governance type of routine. 
in order to do that and keep them connected. So publication meaning there's a source of truth. There's almost a version management and or a clause management versioning happening. That's right. And publishing out, here's the latest. And how do you cascade that with tech or drive or box folders? Well, all the methods people use so that we know we're using the latest version. Quarterly update cycles are a great way to a lot of this. Putting a stake in the ground that we're going to do this with some frequency and it's planned for on a moving forward basis. Barb, would you plus one this, that the inputs and aligning teams and focusing on that is one of the biggest watch outs here? Definitely one of the biggest watch outs. And so I just want to add to that. I think playbooks in this space are absolutely a requirement, but also you have a lot of enthusiasm and energy at the rollout. And then you can see some scope creep where you start to get a little lazy and you allow too many variations back in. So managing that scope creep through the playbooks and through using metrics out of the system, again, looking at what clauses are being used, I think that you have to start to drive a little bit more rigidity in terms of allowing changes. Because once you start to move away from that standardization, you lose a lot of the efficiencies of the tool. One of you mentioned in our pre-chat, optimizing for commercial contractual rights that make a material impact on your business. And I think that's what you're both getting at here is how do you reduce variation? How do you really understand what terms green light more business with the external parties and how do we index on that? Kyle, I think this came from you. Thoughts? There's a lot of ways you can take this, but certainly the content of the contract is kind of the DNA of the operation of the business, right? kind of is. And the information in the agreement drive things downstream, such as invoicing, payment, collections, or should, as far as what this practice should be. And these things start to impact the bottom line of a company at scale. So what we have to focus on here is optimizing for things such as not only do we have the right payment term in the agreement, do we have the right collection? Do we have the right practices to align our operation to those things? And can we identify deviations from it and control for those because we want to keep our working capital balance healthy. We want to be able to grow our company and not be beholden to debtors because we have a working capital problem. That's a real thing that contracts have a role in. Wow. We're talking about CLM topically, but the conversation has gone to what's inside the contracts being sanitized, somewhat standardized, harmonized for sure so that it could go into the technology and work. And every time we try to get close to tech, all three of us leave and we're like, it's about the people and transforming and building best practices and down to the clause level. And I love hearing this because this is an opinion, but I think we need more technology that is centered on the beginning of the deal, which is what this is all about. The inputs inside these Word doc and Google doc templates and forms. Would you both agree? I think you said something, Barb, where there's not a lot up there in the tech that it's really the COE and what initiatives you lead to work on that. I think that the tech is the enabler. I mean, at the end of the day, contracts are everything for what a business does. Everything that you buy or sell is related to a contract. And so how do you make those processes frictionless? How do you optimize what you're delivering for the business? So the tool is the enabler, but the people and the COE wrap around that to drive that enablement and allow those efficiencies to come out 
through all of the work that they're doing around the tool. So you're right. I mean, we've kind of come full circle. We're talking about CLM, but it's really about the people and the processes around it that make it most effective. And what's great about people and processes around it is you don't necessarily need budget for that. You just need time cycles and time on people's calendars and maybe slides and PowerPoints to get the ideas and the alignment together. Some of the early work I remember doing trying to start a COE at Spotify was talking to all the paralegal current staff to understand what they're doing and get them on this journey with us to a better way of doing it around tech. Yeah, it is definitely about, and I said it earlier, about gaining the hearts and minds of people. But I I do just want to, you know, and I know we're coming towards the end of our time, but I do just want to also say, I find it critically important to have leadership buy-in. This is not something that you can just bottoms up. This really has to be a tops down from leadership, really supporting it as well. Well, we're closing out our time here. I want to ask you both, Kyle, what are two or three pieces of advice or things you can tell, leave the audience with on moving the needle with contracting? Yeah. So look, I think you have to be, as the title of the podcast is, you have to be really practical and you have to really frame things that are achievable. You have to keep your focus on what is the bottom line that we're looking for. So if you have that, if you have something that's achievable from a phasing perspective, that's well-informed from the perspective of what risk is that would impact the change initiative, and you are moving towards achieving a bottom line result, then these things tend to work better than if you're just saying, hey, I want to improve contractor. I want to implement a technology. It would be those three things. I love that. Practical, make it achievable and tie it to some bottom line goals is really what you're saying. It's very smart goals of you to break it down to small parts and execute towards those goals. Barb, some parting advice on moving the needle with contracting. What would you leave the audience with? For me, it's a balance between just getting some momentum moving forward because of the resistance that you're going to feel. So making those initial steps and also being able to stay engaged with the legal function that you are really here, as well as the other functions to support. And so how do you balance that where you need to kind of push and push to move forward, but also not lose your audience as you go along? Yes. Keeping the audience engaged on this long transformational journey. Well, and then lastly, tell me what is your hack for keeping people engaged? You're doing this, you're building it. It's going well, I can tell. What's Barb's secret sauce? It's all about building relationships. It's about listening. It's about empathy. It's about relationships. It really is. We started with tech and people were at relationships. We're ending with relationships, (laughs) but it is, it's all about that. It's establishing trust, getting to know each and every one of those stakeholders, as Kyle said earlier, doing those tours, being vulnerable and coming in with the right wording, understanding, empathy, vulnerability. So they go, oh, I trust Barb. She's going to actually make my job more meaningful and I can do it in less clicks, (laughs) in less manual steps. And that is meaningful because the more clicks there are, as we all know, in anything, the more we start to tune out and dream about our next vacation. Well, Barb, Kyle, I want to thank you both for coming on the podcast and sharing your wisdom and thoughts with us on CLM and practical ways to make an impact in your business. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. It is a pleasure to work with you on this, Jen, and for the clock community. 
And always a pleasure to meet with you, Barb. Look forward to more discussions on this in the future. That about wraps up this episode of Clock Talk. Thank you to Barb and Kyle for sharing their experience driving CLM implementations that are impactful to the business. And thank you to EY Law for their sponsorship and development of this episode series. You can catch this and other episodes of Clock Talk wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. Until next time.